Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast today. Very excited to introduce my friend Brad Dimitrovich. He is commonly known as the PR Zealot, but if you don't know who he is, Brad is one of the most influential figures in public relations and especially in public relations as it relates to education. If you have any questions about Ashore, email us at info at ashorap.com or check us out online at ashorap.com. Talk soon. Why are you drinking your whiskey out of your espresso cup? Well, I, I feel like it's really good whiskey and it would be doing it a disservice to drink it out of a plastic cup. You've been doing it all week. Yeah, Not- but now I'm with Brad and I want to impress him. Oh. <laughs> are you impressed? Are you impressed by his cup? I'm impressed by Amy's water. Uh, Brad, thank you for hanging out with us today. It's a pleasure. I'm excited to do this podcast with you because um, you're one of my best friends in the world. If the point of this podcast is to talk about the problems that creatives deal with, you are certainly someone who you you come with a lot of experience. I'm ready. Have have you ever had a startup idea, Brad? Depends on what you consider a startup idea. The question. I've started up businesses. That's that's what we mean, I think. Well, I know nowadays, you know, you kids think it's all of software and app development and all that stuff is True. a startup. Yeah. That is just Cody and his. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> so you know, the first business that I started was when I was in college and it was. When were you in college? I was in college. I graduated in 1980. Ooh. So this was in 78. I started this business and it was a beer can collectible business because oh. beer can collection was real big. All my friends were beer drinkers, so we would go around and buy <laughs> cases of beers, open yeah. them from the bottom, and then I'd sell these cases of empty beer cans to collectors across the uh, uh, across the United States. No way. Was it was a big using business? Using a newsletter format and huh. buying advertising, and it was profitable. It beat, it beat working for minimum wage at a restaurant or a store or anything <laughs> like that, so... Wow. That was my wow. first business idea. Okay, so Cody, what's your startup idea? So um, I've been doing a lot of video gigs lately. And last week I was in Vancouver. And one thing that I think is really important for a lot of director of photographies is to know um, basically how to create a, a really good lighting setup. Um, and so you, you kind of watch TV shows or you watch movies and you you see like really beautiful scenes and you wonder to yourself, like, how was that shot? And you kind of make guesses on it, Right. But what I think would be really cool is to have an app where you could basically log in and then, you know, look up a movie and then look up scenes from that movie and then have like CAD drawings or just like diagrams of how the lighting was set up and maybe some BTS, uh, some behind the scenes footage. So ultimately you, you could you could learn how the greats, you know, produce those scenes and then reproduce them, you know, yourself. I'm really you bad still at- trying to come I'm up really with an idea. <laughs> That my second cool. one was then I became a consultant after my corporate times mm. did that for eight years before I decided to live my fantasy that I always wanted to do, becoming a teacher. That's your fantasy? Yep. You were a consultant for eight years That's and then I you were a teacher. To do. I was in corporate world for eight years, uh, business consulting for eight years, and then went into education for 22. No way. Sounds like you liked well, education the best. Mm-hmm. So you were a teacher for 22 years? No. Uh-uh. Okay, sorry. I only did that for three years. Oh. And then I had someone figure out what my background was. And then I went into educational public relations. Oh, no way. Okay. Did, did you so like you, being a teacher? I loved it. I did elementary school. Oh. So you did PR uh, for corporate America. Mm-hmm. Marketing you, and advertising. And then you moved into a 
freelance consultant role Correct. for eight years. Primarily as a trainer doing sales training and marketing improvement for businesses. Got it. Okay. And, and then you became a teacher and then you became PR for education. Correct. And that's kind of where most of your career correct. stems from. You are correct. And, and I know that at one point you were the president of the Texas School PR Association. You are correct with that too. Yeah. Sounds fancy. I'm a fan it of it. It was fancy. Mm -hmm. It didn't pay anything, but it was very fancy. <laughs> so tell me, was it easier being um, a creative back then than it is today? Uh, the difference is, you know, it's much easier to research now. Mm. That's back fair. then, if you had to research, you had to like go to a library and read stuff that was two and three years old. Would you do that? Or oh, yeah, and or you had to pick up a phone and call people. Yeah. You know, and find out <laughs> what to do. Yeah. Or send them a letter through the post office, you know, please answer me back. No way. And yeah. people, so time wise, everything took longer, you know. And when you think about when I first started, one of my tasks was to help put together these sales presentations for national rollouts at a company. Okay. And so we put together the presentations that the execs would use to talk to people. So that process was, you know, you all got in a room, 10 of you, you talked about, you did a little sketch of, you know, what now a PowerPoint slide would oh, look yeah. like or a right. keynote slide, <laughs> you know, you then took that information over to the graphic designers who sketched it out for you. Then you took it over to the art department to have them work on a thing, you know, then they created cells so you could then change colors and stuff like that easier <laughs> on top of that. And then when that got done, you took it to the photography department and they made your 35 millimeter slide projector that you put into your carousel projector for presentations. Oh my God. So wow. the process to make one slide that we could do now in about 10 minutes or less took probably a good 10 days Dang. by the time you went through all the different departments. Wow. So whenever you were freelancing, you know, back before you lived out your teacher mm -hmm. fantasy, mm -hmm. what sort of things did you do besides, you know, you talk about making really fancy PowerPoints? Oh, no, I didn't do much of that with that, but it was primarily going in and looking at what people, how they were marketing their business, mm -hmm. how they're marketing themselves mm -hmm. and how that it could, they could improve their relationships with their customers and their clients. This was back at a time though, when it was really hard to measure ROI on any uh -huh. kind of marketing activity. Right. Uh -huh. You know, so like today when, when we do an AdWords campaign or we do virtually any kind of campaign that involves, you know, web uh, at all, we have the ability to track our conversion rate and our you know cost per conversion really, really easily. So back then, how would you handle ROI and how yeah, would you measure at, that? You'd look at what your sales were, but of course then that was, you're looking then at history because by the time you got sales in the corporate environment, it would be three to six months mm. afterwards, you'd have nothing instantaneous. While you were doing the process, you would do surveys, you would do in-store in pop-ups if you're doing with consumer sales and actually have somebody watching like in a grocery store. If you were, if you were marketing something, you'd actually have people standing in the aisle watching how people go to that product. Like if you were buying paper towels, you'd have somebody watching how people looked and, and which where their eye went to when they're doing that. So all that yeah. stuff that had to be done is very physically intensive. Yeah, that's true. So if everything is happening online, watching how mm -hmm. like the customers pick it out on the shelf, like that wouldn't really work anymore. Mm. Like now you can watch how like people browse Amazon. Yeah. 
yeah. how fast things sell. Yeah. And and how visually disruptive a product image is, right? Yeah. So it's like when they're when they're scrolling down the feed of their search or whatever, you're searching for microphone arm. Um, mm-hmm. n- you're looking for several things, right? You're looking for the reviews. You're looking for social credibility. Uh, then you're looking for the photo itself. You're, you're trying to determine what you see to be um, a credible product, right? Um, you're looking at the and brand, you of course. see stuff that you looked at yesterday on yeah. Google because yeah. that's popping yeah. up in your yeah. feed. So you've watched um, the creative industry and the PR and marketing industry evolve for the past two decades, three decades almost. Um, and you've seen how not only marketing tactics have evolved and how we've we've changed our approach to consumer purchasing and all these things, but you've also um, seen how customer service initiatives have changed over the time. You were describing earlier how you used to see people at stores watching how people pick up brands and set them down in grocery stores. Um, do you think that uh, the way that companies are approaching customer service today um, is equal to how they used to approach it? I think people's expectations are lower than they were. So your expectations are not there. You know, Hmm. my expectation when I walk into a big, my expectation when I walk into Walmart and I love shopping at Walmart, that's just in case they become a client of mine or something. (laughs) (laughs) Good for you. They're great. Walmart's great. We love Walmart. But their philosophy is, you know, stack it high, sell it cheap. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I'm aware of that philosophy to go in. So I'm willing to, sacrifice certain things in order to get something cheap. Now I could buy, you know, sometimes the same product at a smaller store or something similar. You know, if I want a pair of tennis shoes, I could buy a pair at Walmart or I could go buy a pair at, um, you know, some athletic store. Right. I'm going to get a higher customer service level at the athletic store because the way they departmentalize and stuff like that, but I'm going to pay more for Mm, it. So I think our expectations are different. And one of my customer service workshops that I do, you know, I bring up the point just like, what's your expectation when you go to McDonald's? It's usually the same thing. You go through a drive-thru, you want something quick, cheap. you want it cheap, and you want to fill up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, you know, you, you, you really don't care if the Big Mac doesn't look like anything on their poster. When That's you get true. it, that it's crushed, that it's, you know, yeah. melted down, that mm. the special sauce is leaking out and the lettuce right. is coming out the other way. You don't care. Mm. You're willing to sacrifice some of those things for the price that you're paying. I mean, sure. you're getting a $4 meal. You don't look at the picture. Exactly. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, you know, I think, you know, it's uh, the consumers are better educated, but that also allows for customers to take advantage of their education because if you're expecting something cheap you could provide cheap yeah does that Mm -hmm. make sense yeah that makes sense that's true yeah i actually had a friend who um he had a trouble with one of his amazon orders and uh, he was trying to return it was like basically he was sent a faulty product so he's he's working through amazon to get a refund on this product and actually they responded i saw the email and it said um you know, here's the email address of our CEO, Jeff Bezos. Please reach out to him and he will be able to help you. Well, I can tell you that <laughs> <laughs> Jeff Bezos is not going to respond to your customer complaint about your refund. Although it's going to be one of many people in that department. Yeah, exactly. Right. That's amazing. Yeah. So it, it definitely in terms of the customer service that is expected, I think you're absolutely right. You know, we, we hope for more, but we don't expect that much. When people talk like about Amazon, they have very good customer service ratings because of their return policy. Yeah. Which is, so. they'll literally take 
anything. Which is, you know, and that's a thing that Walmart offers too. You know, they'll let, as long as you've got a receipt, you can pretty much return it. Yeah, that's true. You know, I'm sure a lot of our customers and a lot of the people listening to this podcast are in the creative world and many of them are probably freelancers. Um, how, how did you determine what your pricing structure looks like? Uh, it was based on my market. And since, you know, I concentrate a lot on the education market and I worked in education market a lot, I know what kind of the standard rates are Yeah. and um, what would be the highest point you could charge, what would be the lowest point you could charge. Because it's like anything, if you charge too low, people don't think they're getting quality service. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And if you charge too high, people will always question whether your value was worth it or not, even though right. it was. Right. So there's always a good kind of a, I hate to say midway, but there's always a kind of a good three quarters away. Yeah. Of looking at stuff and, mm -hmm. and for, you know, providing a, a half day of training, a full day of training or, you know, some sort of retainer. Yeah. And a lot of times, you know, knowing, knowing what I know, if you stay under like, um, in the education business and in some companies, it's always kind of good to know what the company's policy is on how many levels of approval is there before you get paid. Yeah. And if $5,000 is the clicker, anything over $5,000 needs two or three approvals. Right. But if you charge $4,999, <laughs> one approval, yeah, well, yeah. the smart person's going to charge $4,999 and get paid a lot quicker. Yeah. Have have your rates changed over your career? Yes. Mm -hmm. Like, were you really cheap in the beginning? Uh, no, I think it was uh, because uh, I was freelancing also the last eight years that I was working. Mm -hmm. I, I had some great bosses that allowed me to take time off and present and talk at conferences and things like that. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I, I didn't charge as much as that time because I was also doing something else, but... When I did it then full time, my rates went up and I sat at that time because I knew this was going to be my full time work for at least the next five years. You know, that was my plan. I already set up my rates on day one mm -hmm. to how they're going to be on the end of five years so that each year it took an increase. Oh, okay. So, so you I, planned it out that way? Yes. Uh -huh. Okay. Planned it out that way. The, as long as Brain Cave has existed, it's never once raised its rate. You know, our rate is 75 an hour. How did you choose that? Well, the, the agency that I was working at prior to was charging, um, it, it had multi-tier levels. So if you were um, like a senior level uh, designer, you were working at 150, you know, billable hours, uh, dollars, you know, per billable hour. Um, but then if, if the CEO was involved in any project, he was charging $300 an hour, you know, billable hour. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I thought that structure was really good, but it was also very complicated, right? You'll spend a little bit of time on one project, but then you'll, you'll go to a different project yeah. and work on it for a little bit. So when, when you're creative and you're, and you're trying to stay in flow and not get stuck, you kind of move from project to project. Yeah. Um, so that was always kind of a struggle for me. So when I, when I started brand cave, I, I came into it knowing that I wasn't going to be a 50 person PR firm and probably never, ever will be hopefully not. Um, so I, I, I came at a rate that I thought was much more reasonable um, and even so it, there's, there's points when I'm, I'm wanting to, you know, help someone. And so I'm wanting to lower my rate just to help them out. But then it's like, I have so much work that mm -hmm. I couldn't do that if I wanted to, you know, it's just the, the, the fact is if you want to work with me, whether or not I'm even worth doing it, I just have too much work to not 
charge what the full rate is. Well, know? yeah. And that's a smart thing to do because if you ever give away your work, it's very difficult to charge for it later. Yeah. Yes. Yep. I mean, because yep. then no matter how big the world is, it's always a small world. Really? He charged you that much? Well, he only did it for me for. Yeah. Has anybody yeah, sure. ever wanted you to do a project for experience? <laughs> yes. I hate this. Uh-huh. Like, and which is reason why I'm not in several organizations because mm-hmm. those people always want, there's some people that get to know you, try to be friendly with you, and then think that they could get your skills free of charge or dirt cheap. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or if and sometimes you, you work with kind of a, a startup or whatever, and, and they say, well, you know, we don't really have a budget for you because um, we're paying out of pocket for this, which I always get frustrated with because like even even ashore, we started out of pocket, you know, um, but they'll be like, but, you know, we'll give you some equity in exchange for your services. I'm like, no, I, I get paid in real money, yeah. <laughs> not in IOUs. You know, I know how startups work, you know, and if you're planning to do this self-funded I'm not going to expect to see any money. You don't accept money from a Macedonian farm of of Bitcoin, huh? (laughs) That's right. (laughs) All of my Bitcoin money has, uh, it's it's, it's about 50% decrease. (laughs) Yeah, I I still don't understand how Bitcoin works, but I'm pretty sure. Now, there's a whole different podcast. Yeah, Yeah, right? That's true. We'll have to get the next one. Cody, why did you buy Bitcoin? That's the podcast. Yeah, Yeah, I can tell you why. To lose money. We've all lost money. I've uh, lost lots of money in investments and that's true. businesses. So, What makes a creative good? Or what makes a bad creative? Do we need to define what good and bad are for this? No, I think, you know. Is it objective? I mean, like if you're hiring somebody, mm-hmm, you want to sure. hire the best person. I think always the thing to do is look for someone who's a self-starter. But also you want to find someone... Uh, that's a devil's advocate. That's not going to always see things your way. That's mm-hmm. going to be able to point out to you something that you haven't thought about before. And that's, you know, my jobs when I was superintendent, I was, uh, was a PR director for superintendents and board members. A lot of times my job was to be the devil's advocate, mm. you know, here's the perfect world, but what if the perfect world is not there? What if this happens? What if that happens? And to look at options. So yeah. I think that, uh, you know, that that's, uh, um, you know, an important part and a person also who could kind of see the end result yeah, and then figure out the plan to get that end result mm. instead of saying, here's the, here's what we want to do, you know, and then there's the end result down the road. Yeah. But, you know, to look at what is the goal, how can we even exceed that? Yeah. So, so. I work with plenty of companies that they, they take this kind of Silicon Valley mentality where they, they don't care how it's done. When they ask for you to get something done, uh, they they just expect it to happen. And if you say to them, well, you actually shouldn't do it this way or, or that's not a good idea because of X, Y, and Z they'll look at you and with kind of disgust and say like, you know, like Steve Jobs style, like get it done. You know, uh, uh, what you said is, is dramatically different from that. And I, I wish more people would adopt that. It's a lot more reasonable. It's less like, you know, if you just have like a positive mentality, everything will work out mm. in the end. Mm. It's just, it's, it's sort of immature to think that way. I kind of like the, the way I see employees, um, is kind of the way I see business in general. Like this is capitalism. Um, and the great thing about capitalism is, um, if, if you mess up, you don't have to repeat that mistake. You know, if, if you work with someone and they did bad work, 
Well, that doesn't mean you should try to not pay them. You should pay them because you engaged with them. You made a contract. You said yes, and you should let your yes be yes. Um, but that does not mean at all that you should repeat that mistake again. You know? I'm learning so much about my boss right now. About, about your boss or your uh, faults? Boss. Oh, who has faults? Who has faults? <laughs> he does have faults. But, Everybody has But faults. that's why I'm here. I'm the devil's advocate. I'm here to, to point things out to him. Hmm. Who is your biggest influence as a creative? Um, well, one of them is a person, a book I've shared with you, which is a Marshall McLuhan. And because um, that book was written back in 67, mm. the medium is the massage. Yeah. And if you kind of look at that, you could really see he was ahead of his time in terms of social media and how we anticipate consumers and the how messages are received and all that stuff. Mm. Uh, from a creative standpoint, how to think, and I hate the terminology out of the box. I've never yeah. liked that terminology, but I can't think of one off the top of my head that's out of the box. <laughs> but uh, uh, a couple of great books that he put out um, during the 80s, and I still have them and still will look at I I'm one of those people that will re reread books when I get into a situation I feel like I'm in a tumble or when things aren't going the way that they should creative wise, mm -hmm. I'll sometimes go, go to the past and try to refresh myself on some stuff in order to get it. And his was, uh, it was Roger Van Etch and he had some two great books called a whack on the side of the head and a kick in the seat of the pants <laughs> and really to unlock your creativity. Yeah. And both of those books were really good and they're still in my library and easy access to where my chair is to turn around. <laughs> so. Nice. Have you, uh, have you had any, any books that have influenced you in terms of your marketing career? I don't read books. <laughs> I, I know for a fact that I've given you some. Yeah, okay. So in the very first interview I ever had with Cody, he gave me this book called... Um, wow. Don't... No, I... <laughs> wow. Paul Graham. <laughs> it's called Hackers and Painters. That's right. I knew it. I knew it the whole time. Okay. <laughs> and was it red? Did you read? No, it was blue. I know. <laughs> it had it had a really cool picture on the front. I liked I liked the cover a lot. Mm. I got, but I I did open it. <laughs> she mostly just read the cover. I mostly read the cover. So hackers and painters was about how you know um, he was one of the guys who like founded Microsoft, right? No, not at all. Not at all? No, Paul Graham I'm, uh, I'm started the Yahoo up. store. Well, he ultimately, the he created one of the first e-commerce platforms okay. that I think became the Yahoo store. My and then bad. he became one of the primary advisors on Y Combinator. So he was, he was kind of the uh, advisor behind um, uh, Airbnb, uh, Dropbox, some of these really big unicorn companies. Oh, he's companies. still alive? Yeah, yeah, he still is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So he was a, a really big advocate for um, programming languages like Lisp. Than me, Abby. So, how old are you? <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and I'm old enough to know better, but still young enough not to die. That book is a collection of essays, which I now understand that you never read. So that um, was good. I did. <laughs> it, it was so it was four years ago. You, you brought up something about that book that I thought was unique. Hackers and painters. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it was, was what? What did you say about it? Just now yeah. or earlier? Yeah, just now. It had a really cool cover. It had a really cool cover. <laughs> so the visual effect. The visual effect was there. And is it, what we look at all the time, yeah. right? I mean, and that's what 
advertising and marketing has been throughout eternity. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so if that appeals to you, you need to borrow the book I gave to Cody about the medium is the massage. Yeah. Have That's you true. read that book, Cody? Of course. Yeah. It only takes like 10 minutes to read. Yeah, oh. It is really short. Why don't you give me short books? <laughs> but I mean, I mean, because all the visual approach that we see. Yeah. In fact, that book has maybe like five words per page. Mm -hmm. it's mostly That's my kind of book. <laughs> five words per page. But again, you know, that gets back to the thing of why before we looked at data and, and, and uh, the way that we do now, that's why people would actually be in a store because mm -hmm. the visual of what your package and what your where your product was placed meant yeah. a lot. That's mm -hmm. something that I think we we might have lost a little bit in the in the transition to web, right? Yeah. I, I used to love going to the store and feeling something and knowing kind of yeah. really what I was buying before getting oh, surprised. I, and the only that's thing the only, reason really, to the only store. time you really seem to do that nowadays is if you go to a small business retailer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, uh um like the jewelry store here on on the square in right. Georgetown, Franklin. I mean, you know, you go in, he knows his stuff, he treats you well, his customer service. Yeah. And, you know, that's the important part when you go to these these uh, smaller base stores. Mm -hmm. Do you think in half a century, or even less than that, those sort of small businesses, those small retailers will still exist? I mean, it, I mean, that's kind of like, there's, a, there's knowledge there and experience that's sort of dying out because... You know, these are stores from like a well, different time. Well, small businesses time. have to exist, or else where where will people drink their coffee? Starbucks. <laughs> well, so <laughs> coffee shops. So I think it's know, actually a little bit like more complicated than that. I think every city. Well, this the, the, this is my theory. I don't know if it's true or not. I have no evidence for this, but every every city kind of goes through these like phases of evolution. Like a little small town uh, square will be revitalized by the antique stores, right? That's like mm -hmm. phase one, right? Every small town in America has just a shitload of antique stores. That's phase um, two. What's, what's, phase, what's one? phase two? Phase one is usually pawn shop and finance. Uh, ah. And bail bonds. Mm -hmm. Bail bonds. <laughs> okay, phase so, two okay, okay. becomes phase. the antiques. And then phase, phase three, three is when people start coming in and they start selling those overpriced knickknacks. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Chotkeys as we like to call them. Right. Right. My generation. And then, uh, and then stage five is when it becomes a full boom and you wind up selling a building that's actually only worth a hundred thousand for a million and a half. Right. Right. Because somebody wants to come to that community. Right. Right. Yeah. So that's when you have the, maybe the, the more niche, you know, products enter in, you have like, uh, the, the fourth wave coffee shops and, and yeah. you have the, the big brands come through Antique map stores. Yeah. It's, it's like art washing here. <laughs> have y'all ever, have y'all ever heard of the phenomenon of art washing? Uh -uh. A neighborhood. So whenever there is a, a a neighborhood in a city that's sort of run down, like it used to be probably, you know, probably in the 60s or something like a center of commerce or industry. And so everything's all, all the buildings are really cheap. Uh, there's big warehouse spaces, things like that. So artists will move in there because it's cheaper for them to get rent and to have studio space. And these are also poor neighborhoods. Uh, the residents who still live there are really poor. Um, they, you know, everything's cheap. There's probably some crime in the neighborhood. And whenever artists move in there, it, it kind of shifts the neighborhood and people start to look at it as this like really like eclectic artsy place where people want to live because people want to live where like the art and the culture is. That's interesting. So, um, so they push out the artists when they move in. Yeah, so artists come in and they're like the first 
wave of like gentrification and they don't even really mean to be they just they're looking for like cheap studio space yeah and then whenever they have lived in the neighborhood long enough and they've kind of beautified it and they've made it more t- like t- i don't want to say tolerable like they've you know livable, livable. livable. yeah then better. then uh the the richer people move in and all their coffee shops and their like fancy delis and stuff and they push out the artists who can't afford to live there anymore mm, yeah and you know, it's it's a whole it's a whole phenomenon of gentrification. Does this happen in every big city? Yeah, it happens in every. It happened in San Antonio. Yeah, I know um, it happened in San Antonio. It, it's happening in East Austin right now. I was going to say that. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it's ha- in in Denver. There's something called uh, the Rhino Arts District, and it used to used to way back. You know, it used to be this place with a bunch of warehouses, and it's right near downtown and. You know, it's kind of in the midst of this. So there's like a lot of arts and there's little coffee shops, but there's also like crime and people still sleeping on the streets. Mm. And it's very strange. It's a really strange dichotomy of like seeing these rich people with their fancy like cortados or whatever those little coffees are. (laughs) And then like. That's just a cappuccino with less milk. Whatever. And then there's homeless people like camping on the sidewalk. It's very strange. And. That's what you guys, whenever you guys are like talking about the phases of mm. like, you know, like revitalizing. The phases have overlap. Yeah. 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 Brad, have you ever had to fire a client? No. Never. I have not, but I have opted not to take some on because of what my perception would be. What do you mean? Uh, how you get bad vibes during perhaps the proposal process or uh, maybe doing some research with some other folks that they have worked with. Yeah. And just kind of realizing that it may not be worth your while to, that money isn't everything. Yeah, yeah. Has there ever been a client you wish you had fired that you you were like, no, I'm going to stick it out to no, the end? I don't think so. Hmm. Huh. I've had ones that have been more challenging than others, but, yeah, you know, I mean, why do you think that is? The do more th- challenging ones that I've had are probably the ones I enjoyed the most. Do you think it's... Why is that? You're- because it pushes me as a creative person. Yeah. I mean, do you think it's your selection process or do you think it's like, I guess, you know... I think it, it, it has to do with two things, the selection process and the reputation. So people know what they're expecting of me when yeah. they, yeah. if they call my office. Yeah. And uh, ask for, you know, a quote or ask for my services. And uh, so they have, there's a reputation that I have and probably it's a 85% good reputation. Mm-hmm. And I think you're always going to have, no matter what, you're always going to have a 15% out there. And there are probably people who've never used your services, but for some reason or another, you may have met socially, you may have interacted professionally, you know, in organizations and stuff like that. Hmm. And you just don't click. And so yeah. a lot of times your perception of somebody will be different. And it has nothing to do with your actual knowledge of their work. Yeah. I think I, I think what you're saying is valid. But for me personally, I usually am wrong about my intuition about a person. Like case in point, the reason that I'm even on this this career path is because I had an interview right out of college with a, with a man named George Sorry, who owned a software company called Mortgage Dashboard. And we had this interview where he hired me, but I left the interview saying, 
he's going to be an awful boss. And I, I had yeah. all the wrong vibes about him. And he ended up being the best boss that I ever had. Um, and I don't know why I felt that way. I felt maybe he was he was just coming across aggressive. And I thought maybe I was just going to be kind of under the, the thumb the entire time. But he ended up being the, the most nurturing kind of employer I, I ever had. And, and that's actually happened to me several times. Uh, picking up clients where I, I would think that this client's going to be the worst, like literally one of my longest running clients, if not the longest running client today, um, my first meeting with him, I, I was actually kind of a dig to him because I thought this was going nowhere. Um, so I kind of, he, he was a very kind of short, uh, you know, he was very much a businessman. Um, and, and I kind of talked about his brand as if I was like, oh yeah, you got an orange, blue and white. You're like every software company. You know, like I talked to him like that <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh, he ended up being one of the best clients I've ever had. So oh I, conversely, I've had meetings with um, clients where I, I walked out of the meeting like, oh, this can be really fun. I, I really like them. And they have been absolutely awful. So I don't know. I don't trust my own tuition. I mean, what it sounds like is that Brad, you need to teach him how to how to really you know, pick out a person. It's that's something right. That he, it just comes with experience because, you know, that's all it is. Just kind of comes with experience and mm. building your reputation and kind of understanding what you're willing to accept and what you're not willing to accept. Yeah. And because uh, over time, over the years, I've been burned. So how do you market yourself to? Pretty much. I, I just kind of market myself with a, a database of people who've signed up for newsletters and stuff like that in the past or people I've met and I just kind of market that way and market myself through some organizations that I belong to. So it's kind of, it's a very word of mouth for you. It's very word of mouth. Knowing people who know people. Yes. Being well connected. Correct. But you're kind of skipping over that you actually built a really healthy email subscription mm -hmm. base. I did, did do a pretty good email subscription and that was done over the years. Mm -hmm. My open and click levels and everything else that you want to look at are always very high. Yeah. You, you actually have one of the highest yeah. open rates I've ever seen run anywhere from 60 to 80% each time that I Dang. do yeah. something. I've never seen anyone hit numbers that high for the kind of number of emails that you send out. Yeah. Here's a good plug for the PR zealot. Uh, if you want to sign up for the PR zealots email uh, list, and get uh, monthly emails. He, he does an incredible job of sending really helpful tips for PR. Uh, go to przealot.com. That one's free. Sign up there. Free up plug. There. Free plug. Free plug. <laughs> free plug. How about that? <laughs> Do you think that God smokes cigars? Well, put it this way. He invented tobacco. That's true. That would also mean that he smokes weed. Okay. He invented, that too. <laughs> he invented hops and barley. <laughs> Well, he, he's definitely a beer man. I know that. I've God definitely God smokes weed. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure my God has a good cigar in his mouth. Mm. Mm -hmm. As long as I've known you, there's been periods of time when um, you've communicated to me that you know you you were facing some burnout, and you were able to get through those periods of time. Um, I'm still figuring out how to deal with burn. I'm, I'm always at like a constant level of some, some level of burnout. Mm -hmm. How do you deal with it? Well, I think, you know, with burnout, like, you know, that's why I said, you know, that there's a couple, there's a couple books that I like to always go back to, you know, which were kind of like my founding principles, which I talked about before. And they're always easy reach, 
of my desk. And sometimes, you know, even if you might be working on a project and running against something, pick something out, read a couple pages. And it, 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 to me, it has an opportunity to inspire me. Uh, second thing, you know, over my career of working for people, uh, you know, to be an actual employee, mm -hmm. I have some, I've had some bosses that were more concerned with the hours that you put in than what you've produced. I hate that. And, you know, I'm at the point that if I come across a burnout, the best thing to do is shut the computer down, unplug, go outside, go smoke a cigar, go do some yard work, go shopping, get yeah. away, yeah. you know, unplug for a day or two and then get back to it. You know, I think weekends are very important when you're starting to suffer in a, uh, in a burnout period. Mm -hmm. But the challenge there is like, sometimes you have so much work that you just can't. You, well, that's a challenge for you because you're young, but a challenge for us <laughs> older ones, we don't have as much work as you're younger, as you younger folks. Do. Okay. So, I mean, but that's something that as you get older, it'll be easier to do. Mm -hmm. But, you know, um, you know, and then I've had employers in my career that were more interested in the content and what you produced versus the amount right. of hours or right. what time you came into the office, you know. Right who understood that you were a late worker, that you didn't need to be there at eight in the morning because a lot of your time was spent in the evenings doing stuff, mm -hmm. you know? So, yeah. I mean, it's just kind of all one of those things. So I kind of learned from that because I have peak times. I'm a very good early morning person in terms of creative. Um, anytime after one o'clock in the afternoon, my creativity level is completely shot. So it's shot right now. Yeah. I'm not being creative. I'm just being talkative. <laughs> That's true. And, yeah. then, uh, and then it peaks back up around seven o'clock at night. Yeah. Really? So, so you just have a lull from seven yeah, to I mean, six 30. If I was going to do anything creative wise, I would, I choose to do it in the morning because my mind's very alert. I yeah. can do things right away when I get up. Yeah. That makes sense. So I was working on some stuff this morning. I mean, got up at five, got showered, got, Ready was sat at my desk by quarter to six. And mm. Dang, is yeah, the I was sun for that? Is the sun even up at a quarter to six? I don't know. I don't either. I just I got have lights on in my office. So it really didn't bother me. What, what do you think the future of the creative industry looks like, and in, in how will designers and marketers? I would have no idea on that because who would have thought ten years ago it would look the way it does? Yeah, yeah. ten years ago, what would you have predicted? 10 years ago, I was doing a workshop for school board trustees on how to get started putting out an electronic newsletter. No way. Wow. 10 years ago. Now it's what messaging system are you using? What social media platform are you using? Yeah. Uh, how do you think about your YouTube channel before you implement it? You were one of the first um, PR uh, professionals in Texas to begin using social media Correct. for, for uh, dissemination of information yeah, in fact, for schools. Most of the, uh, a lot of the policies and guidelines that, that me and, and a, and a gentleman who lived up in, up in, uh, Dallas at the time worked together, uh, with his school district and the school district I was with and created policies and procedures and everything on the use of social media, because at that time, there was a lot of legal implications mm. because when you're dealing with the government, you're dealing with freedom of information acts and all that other stuff. Uh, and in fact, um, the Texas association of school boards 
adopted most of the stuff that we wrote as the given policy for the for the state yeah and it's still being still implemented and it's funny sometimes i'll go to when i visit school districts and i look at their guidelines they look very familiar because i wrote that you they wrote just them. don't know it <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious so, but yeah i mean you know at the time you know when and i was uh i was totally opposed of getting into it and i went to a a conference and met uh, Brian Person one time and uh, Jeff Livingston. And uh, um, I forget what book Jeff was promoting. Jeff was promoting his book, Now It's Gone. If mm-hmm. you haven't read that one, it was really good at that time. Because sure. he talked about how now is gone. We're working all the time. Oh, right, and, right. And uh, Brian was one of the first... Uh, uh, probably had the first position in any corporation that he was called an evangelist, hmm. you know, product yeah. evangelist at that time. Yeah. That, that's and, really common now. Yes. Uh-huh. And, uh, both of them, we, we, I, I presented to them the, um, uh, a lot of the issues that we had within public education and we kind of all talked about how things would work. And, hmm. and so, uh, at that time and i'm still in contact with brian i mean he was one of my first twitter followers and i was i thought i think he was number one or number two that i followed so it's kind of funny so that was yeah. 12 years ago no kidding so, so uh, if, if you can't uh, predict the future for us uh, can you at least give creatives listening to this podcast uh, your best tip for for working as a creative listen uh, listen listen because when you think about it listening is the key to communication and listening is the way that you could become more creative because if you're actually listening to their, your clients, you'll understand your clients better and you can produce for your clients better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. comes down to people. Mm-hmm. Even though we're all electronic nowadays, there's well, still a person. But what if all the people you work with are okay. just really stupid? <laughs> you know, that has to... What if listening to them actually makes you lose brain cells? <laughs> well, that happens. <laughs> And, you know. But remember, your job as a good creative person is to take the glob of nothingness and yeah. turn it into something. That's a great point. Beautiful. That's the quote. A glob, glob of nothingness. A glob of nothingness. And turn it into, into something. something. That's, right. that's so true. That's well, a lesson that is, I'm learning. I don't know, but you turn it into something. That, mm-hmm. That's a lesson I'm, I'm seriously learning. Uh, what I've What I've discovered even in the past six months is just the patience that you need to have with clients is not hearing what they say, but hearing what they're trying to communicate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so often they just do not have the ability to articulate yeah. how they feel. That's most mm-hmm. of us about most things. It's just that because creatives work in this industry, they kind of, they have their finger right already on it. And I think that, and that's what the thing too, as you continue to become, continue to be successful, like you are, you're going to have almost like standard questions and like a checklist that you could take clients through that you're going to understand them better. And they're also yeah. going to be able to understand their goals better. That's a good way and to do it. that's kind of, kind of the thing to, to, to do. Like, you know, um, I received an email from somebody yesterday who wanted to talk to me about doing a communications audit at their firm. And so, you know, I send them up one simple question. Why do you want to do this? And based on that answer, you could kind of understand why they want to do it. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes the reason why someone wants to do something is because their boss told them to do it. Right. 
And why did their boss tell them to do it? Because some other company or some other school district is doing it. And that mm -hmm. sounds really cool. So is that the good valid reason to have a communications audit or what are you trying to do? Are you trying to improve your communications? Are you trying to improve your communication? Like this was school district to parents, to employees, to the outside, who are you trying to do? So, right. So once that answer comes back, then I usually send off three or four more questions. Mm. And then we could kind of see what we could do together. Yeah. But, you know, that helps them to find it. And then, you know, sometimes I tell the person, sounds like you don't need this. What you just need to do is yeah. kind of really think about what your goals are, put them together. So what you know, you're, what you're doing. No, because I lost money. Yeah. You know, but. You know, I don't want someone to pay $15,000 for an audit and they have nothing better or worse than they have now because they didn't put any plan into it. Well, here's something that you are doing that I think does make it smarter. Um, the, I've seen this with other firms in the past where um, they'll just say, okay, client asked for us to do social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Pinterest, right? They, they, they think they need to have a big uh, presence on Pinterest. Okay, fine. So they do that and, and they just go with whatever the client says and they never insert themselves as the authority, as the creative with the person who does actually mm -hmm. have experience. Um, and what that ha what, what occurs from that is that they ultimately lose that role as the creative expert and just become kind of this workhorse and they work for cheaper. Um, mm -hmm. When the creative retains the ability to be the expert in their position, um, ultimately it leads to a, a stronger relationship in the long term. And I think that does mean more money. Just a then, workhorse with Pinterest boards. That's, that's right. right. Yeah. And you know, then the client wants you to do something that they either don't have the time for yeah. or don't have the expertise for. And you know, mm -hmm. it's nice when both of them mix, if they don't have the time for it, you have the expertise for it. Then yeah. yeah, that's You're true. making money. Yeah. You're making money. And you know, yeah. that's what it's all about. Pay them bills. Yeah. And I mean, it's also important not to take advantage of people who are exactly. like, we need to be on Facebook and like they don't mm -hmm. and they're paying for that. Right. And they don't need oh. to be. Yeah, true. Brad, how can uh, people reach out to you or uh, follow you on the social mediums? Well, przealot.com. PRZealot is my Instagram. You'll find always pictures of me smoking cigars and or meeting with clients and doing strange things. Or pictures or with your cute dog. On Twitter at Brad Dimitrovich. All right. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. It was fun. Let's do it again. All right. See you guys. Bye. Talk soon. Bye.